0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here, and uh, so excited to join one another this morning in worship as we continue our study through Ephesians. Now, as we start, I just want to uh, uh, say, and this is, this is a true for, for all of life, right, that what we wear uh, is important. And what I mean by that is that it's, it's important that we are appropriately dressed for certain occasions. Perhaps you found yourself in a situation where you have not been appropriately dressed for an occasion, uh, and you thought you had what you need, but you ended up not having precisely what you need. My wife and I uh, had an example of this happened to us last weekend. Uh, last weekend, we were down in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we were celebrating... Oh, oh, you already put it up there. That's fine. Uh, you know, the, the, the tagline will get there just a minute. Um, but uh, we were, were down in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, we were celebrating the, the wedding, of, uh, wedding ceremony of John and Ma. Uh, Congratulations again to them. And uh, are they here today by chance? They are. Oh, congratulations. Big time, guys. Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And as we were down there, you know, naturally, when, you, when, when one thinks of the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area, they think of the beautiful beaches, and they think of the South Florida warmth, which we were looking forward to getting into, uh, coming from the uh, really cold in dreary D.C. And so we get down there, and Saturday morning, uh, Abby and I, we have some free time, and so we're like, okay, let's go stroll on the beach. Like, you know, we need to get some uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, whatever. We need to go, and uh, we need to, to get in the sun, and we need to really soak up the rays and just enjoy some warm weather. Well, we were not prepared at all for what we were going to experience because we uh, did not bring our tank tops and bathing suits but we also did not bring weather that was uh, prepared for 40 degree weather in South Florida. So we get to the beach and it's literally 40 degrees and windy and so we're walking down the main drag of Fort Lauderdale freezing and we're desperate like we can't keep going and so we we find this little beach shop and we walk into the beach shop and we find that this guy has these random sweatshirts for sale and we're so desperate, we're like, okay, we'll do it. But, but notice that the sweatshirts had nothing to do with Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> they had nothing to do with South Florida or Florida in general. I think this guy like, got them off a good, like, from Goodwill, or he may have got these like, on a wholesale market somewhere. There's these random places. We didn't care. We were so cold. We're like, hey, we did not come prepared for this. So we struck up a deal with the guy to get two for a discount. And we walked around Fort Lauderdale the rest of the day with one that said Fenwick Island, Delaware, and one that said Maine. <laughs> and it was a great conversation starter because everybody kept asking me if I was from Delaware. I was like, I don't even know where Fenwick Island is, but uh, this was a great great conversation starter. Now, I say that because uh, what we wear matters. If we're not dressed appropriately, uh, it can have uh, a fundamental effect on who we are. And in fact, this, this isn't just physically. Uh, there's actually some behavioral scientists who have come up with the phenomenon called enclosed cognition meaning that our clothes actually have an effect on us. This idea of enclosed cognition is that our clothes affect our emotions, they affect the way we evaluate ourselves, our attitudes, and even our interpersonal relationships with others. And so during this study, uh, as they were studying different people, they found through their research that this was quite true. And one of their examples of their research was that wearing formal attire in an office setting actually puts us in the right mind to do business. And they actually found this, that men who wear suits, it actually increases the hormones needed to display confident leadership and dominance. Maybe there's a reason why we wear suits every Sunday, right? (sighs) I'm just kidding. The article also said that wearing gym clothes showed that people would make healthier choices in their day. So you didn't have to go to the gym just wear gym clothes and you'll be healthier, right? And it's true that what we wear typically does affect us more than we realize. Now I say this because as we saw last week in the text, and Paul's going to continue to pick up on this theme, uh, we we saw this theme really of this imagery of clothing. Paul uses this analogy of the old self and the new self. What he's getting at there really is, is this idea that we throw off an old garment and we put on a new garment. And he uses this in other places through his writings, this imagery of putting off an old clothing, or an old garment, and putting on a new to describe what happens when we become a Christian. We assume a new identity, and, and Ephesians has been teaching us about this new identity in Christ. In fact, the majority of the first half of the book has been showing us and reminding us of this new identity we have in Christ. And now for the remainder of this uh, letter that we're studying, we're gonna see that Paul's gonna continually now harp on the idea, well, if we know what our identity in Christ is, then it should affect the way in which we live. It should affect the way in which we go about our days living out this new identity, which is really the main idea of this text, very similar to last week, is to live out. We are called to live out our new identity in Christ. Said another way, our clothes should match our identity. When you look at a firefighter, you know a firefighter by his uniform. You know a police officer by their uniform. In the same way, a Christian, not physically what we're wearing on the outside, but a Christian is known by the way in which we walk. That our clothes, the the way in which we, what we put on in life, how we live our lives, are identity markers of what's happened already on the inside of who we are. As we're going to see this truth lived out today in this text, we're going to ask three questions from uh, the text today. Number one, why does it matter? Why does it matter that as Christians we put on something new? Number two, what should we do? Right? Paul's going to give us a list of things to actually do. Uh, what should we put on? Right? And then three, what resource do we need? Because the reality is that the text, the things that we will see and discover in this text are hard. We need a resource outside of ourselves in order to to do these and to walk in these daily. So we're asking ourselves the third question of what resource do we need to put on these new clothes, these new garments, as we are a new person in Christ. So let's go straight to the text today with our first question, why does it matter? Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So why does it matter that we, uh, we put on these new clothes? Why does it matter that we live out our, our new identity in Christ? Well, he says here because we are now members of something different. We are members of a new community, members of one another. And this has been illustrated for us already in the book of Ephesians, that Jews and Gentiles that that were once divided by this wall of hostility, as chapter 2 reminds us, have now been brought together through the cross of Jesus Christ, and now they are one family, united together. And even though historically they were opposed to one another, even, even though historically they were enemies of one another, because of Jesus Christ they have now been brought together as one family Now, this is why this matters, understanding this, because when you bring people together who are natural enemies, as D.A. Carson, a, a contemporary theologian, says it this way, Christians are a natural band of enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. When you bring people together that have natural inclinations to be different from one another, then the things that Paul says we should put off here are going to be natural effects of that. Things like corrupt talk, anger, bitterness, wrath, slander, malice, These are the temptations when you bring people together. And so what Paul's reminding us of is why does it matter that we put on this new self? It's because we've been brought into a new family. And when we're brought into a new family, things change. We're different now. It's not just that we're members of a church like we're members of another club or a gym or something of that nature. When we're members of the church, he literally says we become members of Christ himself, members of one another. We're being built up together. We're being cemented together as one family. We are partakers of the divine nature now because we are being built up in Christ. And so it matters that we put on this new self because we have a new family that we're part of. And with that new family, we, we need to walk in a new way. But notice there's another reason that he gives us in this text. And it comes in the middle of all these commands. It's in verse 30. He gives us a very specific command in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now this is interesting, because when, when Lydia was just reading this text, a lot of the things that Paul uh, teaches here, a lot of the things that Paul even commands here are, are relatively normal, good, moral things. Like don't lie, don't steal, right? These, these are things that other moral systems would say the same. But this is what separates the Christian faith. It doesn't just say don't lie and don't steal, Paul says don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God in the middle of this. You're not gonna find that in other ethical systems. Other ethical systems will say things like, don't lie and don't steal because it's the right thing to do. Other moral systems will say, don't lie, don't steal, don't, don't be angry in, in destructive ways because if you do that, it's actually gonna hurt you. But notice Paul's reason for why we don't do those things, why we put off those things, is not primarily because it's the right thing to do. And it's not primarily because it's gonna hurt you and affect you if you do those things. It's primarily because it grieves your friend, your God. That is why it matters. Because at the core of it, he's saying it grieves the God who has redeemed you. You see, when we act and we speak as if we don't, or excuse me, if we act and we speak as if we're wearing those old garments still, the text literally says it makes God sad. God takes it personally. See, if God is just some uh, force out there to us, if he's impersonal, if he's just an idea to us, then he can't grieve. That he won't experience personally what that feels like. But if God is person, if he is a person, through the Holy Spirit, he will feel it. Because when we sin, when we do something wrong, God just doesn't look at us and say, you did it again, you're wrong. No, his emotions are bound up with us. It grieves his heart because he loves us. It grieves his heart because he has redeemed us for something greater and better than those old garments that we so easily go back to. So why does this matter? Not because uh, when we get to this list of things that we should put on and put off, it doesn't matter just because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter just because it will affect you negatively if you do those things. It matters because it grieves God's heart when we sin, when we walk in sin. You see, The reason why it grieves God's heart is because the clothes that we should put on are so different than the clothes that we should put off. The clothes that we put off are characterized by death and darkness. The clothes that we put on are characterized by light and life. And the saying typically goes when we think of change in life and if we want this renovation project in our hearts, the, the, the idea is that, well, out with the old and in with the new. But that's not the Christian faith. We don't try to get the old out first so that the new can come in. We don't try to clean ourselves up first so that then something new can come in and refreshing can come in. No, the power of the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, and he says, in with the new and out with the old. The way we experience change is that God personally has relationship with us, and only by his power and his presence can we actually experience change. So this is why this matters. Before we get into the list of things that we should do in the community of faith and things we should not do in the community of faith is to understand rightly the reason why we want to do those things is because God is working from the inside out to change us, to transform us into his own character. And he has brought us into this new family. And with that new family, there is new relationship. There is a desire to be one as we are built up in one another. And so what should we do then? If this is why it matters that It's not just doing right because it's for the sake of right, or it's it's not just uh, because it will hurt us if we do wrong, but because we have a relationship with God and we've brought into this new family, then what should we do? Well, Paul begins to give us an illustrative list. Now, it's an illustrative list, meaning that this is not comprehensive to all of life. He's very specifically talking about the interpersonal relationships that happen within the body of Christ. And he's given us examples of what we should do in, in those relationships that can maintain the unity of this new family. And so we're gonna look at these in categories and what we should put on and vice versa, what we should also put off. The first thing we see is that we should put on integrity we should live with integrity, both not only in our speech, but also he'll say even in our work. Look back at verse 25 again. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak with truth with his neighbor. So Paul is assuming something that's a a pretty basic biblical truth, that all of our words work towards some end. Here, he says, it's either falsehood or it's truth, it's integrity. Now, sometimes when we think of falsehood or we think of lying, we typically maybe just think of it as as spreading uh, inaccurate information, right? Spreading something that's false. But St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he wrote about falsehoods and lies, and he says it this way. It's deeper than that. He says, a lie consists in speaking a falsehood with the intention of deceiving. That it's not just that we tell inaccurate information when we say a falsehood, it's that we actually have the goal of deceiving, And Paul says this is the type of things that have to be removed from the community of faith, that we should speak with one another with integrity, not with falsehood. Now, why is this difficult? Why is it so easy to speak with this type of deception? Well, I think, personally, in my own life, I've found that it's because sometimes we just feel like it's not that big of a deal, right? We hear the, the, the phrases like little white lies or polite lies, right? Perhaps someone asks you, hey, can you come help me move? And you're saying, oh, well, I actually think I'll be out of town that day. When you know good and well, you're not gonna be out of town, right? Deceptiveness. Or perhaps even deeper, when someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, and you just tell them, no, it's not that big of a deal. No, it's really not that big of a deal when inside you're seething, but you just don't wanna face the conflict. You don't wanna stir things up. You see, these white lies, these polite lies, they creep in, they become much bigger deals than we realize. Because when we do these things, the end game is actually to deceive. And when we deceive, we actually strip reality from our neighbors. And what I mean by that is this, if I lie to my neighbor, I am taking reality for him or her. Because I am now forcing them to make a decision, or I'm now forcing them to respond to a falsehood, not a truth. It's actually a demeaning thing to lie to my neighbor because I am treating them as less of a person. I am just, I'm treating them as less reality but you know, it's not just about misleading, because when we look at the motives of, oftentimes of our falsehoods and our lies, doesn't it really just come down to fear? At the end of the day, don't we, don't we like to deceive because of fear? Perhaps you're fearful of confronting someone, and because of that fear, you, don't, you just wanna lie, you just wanna to, to say a falsehood to get over it. Or perhaps even deeper sometimes, you know that if you tell the truth, it's gonna expose you. And you don't want people to think less of you and your reputation. Fear oftentimes is the motive that drives drives us to be deceitful with our words, and Paul says to the contrary: the community of faith should be a place where we trust one another, and we can speak with integrity. Our yes be yes, and our no be no. But this integrity also uh, leaks into the way in which we work. Now I'll be brief here because Paul's going to expound upon this later in the letter. But but he says here in verse twenty-eight: let no thief, or let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So again, he's talking about the community of faith here, and he's talking about uh, stealing. And, and you know, we can all raise our hands and say, yeah, I've, I've lied before. But none of us want to say that we're, we're thieves, right? <laughs> uh, it's not common for us to walk in a room and say, confess, yeah, I stole this week. Um, that's probably not a good thing, right? But, but the thievery he's talking about here is not just how we think about it in the community of faith, stealing in our work is is essentially working without integrity. What he's saying here is thievery or stealing is just working with a selfish end game. It's all about you. And so to steal in the community of faith is to, to work without integrity to an end point of maybe taking from someone, but it also could be from withholding something from someone. Because he says here the end game of of integrity in our work is actually that we would have something to give. We'd have something to bless others. We'd have something to actually be there for one another. And so he begins here with this idea of walking in integrity, both in our words and even our actions in our work. And then he continues with something that uh, is is quite an interesting command. He tells us to be angry. He says, be angry. What should we do? We should be angry. Now he's talking about a rightly channeled anger here. Verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. But then he expounds upon what anger can look like when we do give opportunity to the devil, when we do uh, do it in an inappropriate and destructive way. He says, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul's reminding us that anger is a destructive energy. It always aims at destroying something. But sometimes, anger can be used to destroy things in a life-giving way. That when channeled properly, it can actually be a really good thing. Now, this would be jarring to the original readers, just like it's jarring to us to hear this today. Because most of the Gentiles who were reading this, they would have grown up in Greek philosophy. And one of the dominant Greek philosophy of the days was Stoicism. And Stoicism would say, keep your emotions in check. To be angry is to show a sign of weakness. To express your anger is weakness. So keep your composure, keep your cool, always be under control. That is virtuous. And some of us have probably been raised that way as well, haven't we? Keep your anger on the inside. Just count to 10, right? Tell my kids that it doesn't work ever. Right, just bite your tongue. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. But where in the Bible are we supposed to be this type of superficial nice person? Where was Jesus this person? Was he tender? Absolutely, was he full of compassion? Yes, was he angry? Yes. You see what Paul's getting at here is that a lack of anger actually signifies a lack of the highest virtue which is love. A lack of anger actually is a a signpost, is a signifier to a lack of the highest virtue, which is love. Because we get angry, we get mad when something that we deeply love is threatened in life. Do we not? When something that we have high regard for is at risk. When something that we love most or someone that we love most is threatened, damaged, or at risk, we get mad. It is our natural desire to do so. In the Bible, God does the same. God's love detests anything that destroys his beloved. He absolutely detests it. You see, real love stands against the deception and lies of the evil one who seeks to destroy. Just like a father who loves his child, the more I see my children every day, the more I hate the sin in them. And the same is true how God looks at his beloved. So we think about anger, it's not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. We've said this before. The highest form of hate is indifference. That's not who we want to be. We don't want to be the type of people who just sweep, ru- uh, uh, sweep it under the rug and suppress our anger. Christianity, perhaps more than any other worldview in the world, gives us an accurate view of how we can use our anger in a legitimate way. Because there's something at stake here, and this is why he says that don't give opportunity to the devil. There's something at stake here within the community of, of faith. Because as a community, we are built on a equal playing field. What I mean by that is, as a community, our our relationships with one another is built on grace, it's built on love, it's built on forgiveness. As we said at the beginning in the prayer, all you need is need to be part of the community of faith. We have nothing else to offer, but we're all in need. And we come together on that basis. But you know who doesn't like that type of community? Proud people. You know who doesn't like that kind of community? Angry people like the Pharisees. Because anger in a toxic way says that I'm superior than you and I need to feel that superiority. And the reason why he's saying don't allow the devil to get a foothold in the community is because our community is based on that grace, truth, and love. And anger in a toxic way says that I'm superior than someone else. And and the lies and the deception, the accusation of, of the evil one, who is the father of lies, is to make us believe that we are no longer under grace. Because if we're no longer under grace, then we have every right to look at someone else and demand something out of them to live up to. And if they don't do it, we can hurt them. That's the destructive force of anger. And that's why he says we can't allow the devil to get a foothold in the community of faith. Because you can think of anger in this way. It's like a natural gas, right? We benefit greatly from natural gas. We're benefiting from it right now, actually. It's heating this room for us. Praise God for that, right? When it's channeled rightly, natural gas can be a really life-giving thing. But if we have a carbon monoxide leak in our homes, it can be very destructive, right? If it comes in contact with the wrong substance, it can light a spark that can burn down a building. But When it's channeled properly, it heats a room. When it's channeled properly, it can actually help us cook our food so that we don't have bacteria in it, so it can nourish our bodies. And the same way with anger, there's a rightly channeled way to use our anger to heat the world, to, to, to actually do good for others. And how do we do that? Well, it comes through the walking in the spirit, right? In, in uh, chapter five, he'll tell us this, that we walk in love. And the idea of walking in love in chapter five is an active voice, meaning that it's not a one-time thing, it's a continual thing. We have to daily walk in love. We have to walk in patience. We have to grow in these areas of our lives. and We have to do it in the mundane so that when something really big comes, dramatic comes in our life, we're not a quick fuse, but the Holy Spirit actually allows those short fuses to turn into long fuses. He says, be angry, but do not sin, meaning that there is actually a life-giving way that we can lose our cool without losing our character, with doing good, with our anger. Then he continues in verse 29, he goes back to our speech again. He says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that I may give grace to those who hear it. So here he's talking about edifying words. Another thing that we put on is, is building up one another through our words. Uh, you know, Dumbledore uh, in, in the Harry Potter uh, series, you didn't think I was going to drop a Harry Potter quote on you. Uh, he says this to Harry Potter. He says, words are a most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Now, he's right in part of that. I don't agree with the the magic stuff, that's weird. But he's, he's right about the power of words. They have immense power to build one another up. You see, Paul doesn't say that we have to be the creators of peace in the body of Christ. Christ has already done that for us. But we are to pursue peace with one another. We're to use our words to reconcile and to build up and to edify one another. It's our responsibility to do such a thing. He says, don't let corrupt talk be the identifier of the congregation of faith because the corrupt talk he's talking about here is a word that means decay. It's a word that means rot, like rotting of a fruit. In essence, what he's saying here is we should not use our words so that when it touches a human being's soul, that it would actually cause decay to them. It would actually cause rot in them but instead to use our words to build them up into the person that God has called them to be. He gets really practical here in verse 29. It's actually quite amazing. He gives us a a, a structure for how we can go about doing this. He says, only what is good for building up. So the first thing we have to do, if if that's the case, we have to consider the person itself. Words that build up are always words that are other-centered and not me-centered. But then he goes, as it fits the occasion. In other words, it's important for us to think, what is the actual need here? If we're thinking about the person, what is the occasion that I'm speaking to? Do I need to speak words of comfort? Do I need to speak words of rebuke? Do I need to speak words of love? What is the occasion that fits here that would ultimately give grace to those who hear? That we'd use our words in a way that is effective to build up one another and not corrupt, not cause decay in the way in which we speak. And then next he talks about forgiving one another, verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So he lands here at the end of this chapter with this other thing that we should be putting on, and that is forgiveness. That we should walk daily in forgiving one another, and he says the, the pattern for that, the paradigm, the grounds for that is what we've been learning about in the first three chapters of this book all that Christ has done for us in Christ, or all that God has done for us in Christ. The way which He has forgiven us. He says, as God in Christ forgave you, in essence, the model for our forgiveness of one another is God's forgiveness towards us. We forgive one another and we continue to do that through our interpersonal relationships because we have experienced the forgiveness of God. Now let's just be real for a moment. Forgiveness is costly. It hurts. It's not easy. And again, that is modeled in our own salvation. Real forgiveness always costs. It costs Jesus everything. It costs the father the loss of a son in order to observe the debt that we owe so that it would not be held against us anymore. So all forms of our forgiveness are just many versions of what God has already done for us. Let me just be clear, when I talk about forgiveness is hard, I'm, I'm not saying that forgiveness is the same as trust. When you're hurt by someone and trust is violated, there's wisdom to put up guardrails for a season. There's wisdom at times to allow time to heal, for trust to be gained again. That's not what we're talking about here. It's something beautiful though when you see the community of faith where people allow for that time for trust to be rebuilt, for reconciliation to truly happen. Because after all, are we not just a community of people who are all broken, all striving for the same goal, to be more like Jesus? But forgiveness at its very core is this. It's a resistance to the retaliation impulse in our hearts. What I mean by that, forgiveness at its core is the resistance to the impulse that somehow I can reduce my level of pain by striking back and causing more pain in someone else's life. It's our natural inclination of all of us that when we're hurt to say, I wanna cause pain in someone else's life and maybe that will reduce the pain that I feel. But forgiveness is the resistance to that. It's a reminder that grudges and bitterness will not win. To nurse a grudge is the only way to guarantee that someone who has hurt you will always have power over you. Forgiveness is freeing. Corrie Timboom Boom uh, was a victim of one of the greatest atrocities in history through the Holocaust, and she witnessed her own sister die in a concentration camp. And she later wrote a, a, a wonderful book and in that book, she talks about forgiveness, and after all that she experienced, stepped her, all that she processed through the Holocaust, she, she lands here, she says, I have no choice but to forgive. And this is what she says in her book. Because forgiving is setting the prisoner free only to find out that the prisoner was me. Forgiveness is freeing. It frees us from pain. It frees us from the self-inflicted suffering of when we're hurt. Now, it's hard, it's costly, but it is so freeing to our souls. Now, Paul goes through this list and this is a hard list to swallow. It's, there's so much more we could say about this, of the things that he tells us here that we should put on now that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we received, but let's end here. What is the resource that we need for this? This is tough, this is hard, this is impossible to do in our own strength. What is the resource that we need? look at verse one and two of chapter five. Therefore, knowing all this, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. There's an emotional and spiritual resource that we all need. When it feels impossible to forgive, when it feels impossible to rightly channel our emotions and our anger, when it feels impossible to, to tell the truth, and that resource, is to be imitators of God. And that resource is ultimately to rest in a God who is both full of love and wrath. A God who is both a God of love and a God of anger. Now, That's hard to sit with for a moment, but let me just use an illustration for you. When you're a child and you go to the playground and there's a bully on the playground who is bullying everyone on that playground, everyone is, is uh, subject to the bully's bullying. What does our heart naturally want? Our heart wants to see someone bigger, someone stronger, a defender, to come in and bully the bully. It's actually a beautiful emotion to desire a bully that could crush that bully, excuse me, desire someone who can crush that bully under his feet. That is one of the comforts that we can rest in, that God is a God who will not allow his people to be bullied. He promises us that he will take care of that bully for us. So when it's hard to forgive, when it's hard to speak with integrity, how do we do those things? It's trusting in the fact that Jesus will come again. He is the champion, he is the victor. And the scriptures remind us he will crush that bully forever and ever under his feet. He will come back and he will throw all evil into the abyss forever. We can trust in that power. But, but listen, it's not just in that power, but another power that we can trust in today. Not only that when we feel in our hearts that there is evil and wickedness in this world, that God in all of his power will not let that stand, but when vengeance is in our hearts, when grudges are in our hearts, when, we, when we're pronged to put back on those old garments, we can look to Jesus and know that not only will he come to crush all evil, but he gave himself up for the offender. That when we're offended, our hearts will cry, how can, how can someone experience love and forgiveness? Why would I ever want to extend that to someone? Well, it's because precisely that is what Jesus has done for us that none of us in this room have any hope apart from Christ, apart from Christ coming to us when we were at our very worst, when we were the bully. You see, what we have done to Christ far exceeds, infinitely worse, than what anybody could ever do to us. Our hearts bite the hand that feeds us every single day by not giving thanks to Him. We insist that we would be the Lord of our lives, in our hearts' nature, we think that we're the master of our own destiny, and God in Christ has still come to forgive us, nonetheless. And he has come, as Ephesians 5 reminds us, to demonstrate his agape love for us. A sacrifice to God, a love that says, I'm willing to give up my life for another, but not just for my friends, but for my enemies. You see, up until the point of the cross, Jesus and the Father were in this perfect union together. Side by side, in love, on mission. And then we get to the cross, and on that day in history, for the very first time and the only time the Father turns his back towards his Son. Deafening silence. Active and passive aggression being poured out toward the Son all the anger felt upon Jesus so that forever and ever, we would not have that put on us if we trust in him. A day where where we will no longer be alone in this world because Jesus on that night on the cross, in that moment, was the loneliest person ever to live. And at one and only moment in history, the Father allowed the sun to go down on his anger. It was midday, the sun was shining, and yet God commanded the skies to grow dark. And in that darkest hour is when the sun went down on his anger, as his wrath fell on Jesus. He attacks the goodness of Jesus on the cross so that, listen, so that he could defend us who are hostile towards him, so that he could kill our sin without killing us. In that darkest hour, that is what is taking place. And you know what Jesus cries on the cross? In that moment, he says, forgive them, Father. Forgive them. When we can let that rest on our hearts, deep in our hearts, the powerful love of God, but also the anger of God. To the degree in which that becomes settled in our hearts, we will have a resource far beyond anything else in this world, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, that will allow us to move towards integrity in our lives, that will allow us to move towards rightly channeled anger in our lives, that will allow us to use our words to build up one another and to forgive one another, even when it's costly, even when it's hard, because we know what Christ has done for us. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, let's allow that truth to sit in our hearts this morning that we can put on the new self because of what Christ has done for us. We can rest in God's love for us, that he will not only crush the bully once and for all, but he has come to lay down his life for his enemies. Therefore, it can allow us to be imitators of God, forgiving those who need forgiveness, to put on the new clothes, to walk in his sacrificial love.